You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Future Mac here. This episode seems to begin very abruptly, and that is because I have cut out a extended discussion between me and Zoe regarding which text we're going to read today, because I had a very long text, but this was recorded when Zoe was very busy in writing her master's thesis, and we just weren't going to have time to do the whole text. So we decided instead to do some excerpts from the Gesta Romanorum on the grounds that the Gesta Romanorum was sitting right next to me at the time. Also, if our references to current events seem off, keep in mind that we do often record these episodes several months ahead of time. And here you go. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Go for it. Okay, this is Tale 28 of the Execrable Devices of Old Women. Oh, okay. In the kingdom of a certain empress, there lived a knight who was happily espoused to a noble, chaste, and beautiful wife. It happened that he was called upon to take a long journey, and previous to his departure, he said to the lady, I leave you no guard but your own discretion. I believe it to be wholly sufficient. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a- First off, like this, this sounds like it's very wholesome on its front, but we know how these stories go. Right. And also that's a weird thing to say is like, yeah. <laughs> hey, I could put guards on you, but I know you're not going to cheat on me, right? Like why even say it? This is the same thing with the romances. It's like, "Oh, but it's true love." And then everybody's cheating on everybody. Yeah. Okay. He then embarked with his attendants. She meanwhile continued at her own mansion in the daily practice of every virtue. I assume she has like a checklist of like charity, check, faith, (laughs) check. Oh, yes. See, but a lot of those like chastity, you don't really do anything for chastity. It's just the lack of doing something. So those you can't check off until the end of the day. That's true. So she like she has her little like to do's and then not to do's. And at the end of the day, she just (laughs) checks them all off. Let's see, not to do simony. Still don't know what it is. Probably didn't do it. <laughs> we should be fine. A short period had elapsed when the urgent entreaties of a neighbor prevailed with her to appear at a festival, where, amongst other guests, was a youth upon whom the excellence and beauty of the lady made a deep impression. He became violently enamored of her, which is a worrying phrase. That is. I really hope this is the Victorian translator making it more elaborate than it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it is. True, but why why did he pick that word? I don't know. See, either way, this brings up questions. Yeah. About either, you know, the medievals or the Victorians. Yeah, because my first thought was violence and enamored go really bad places when they're combined. Yeah. Like, that sounds like you you have a psycho stalker now. I was going to say that, or like, you know, you get like a David and Bathsheba scenario. Yeah. Which is, you know, also not good, and also psycho stalker. That's true, actually. I feel like there are some (laughs) parallels there. There's some exegesis for you. We haven't even gotten to the end of the story, and we're already doing the exegesis. Now you see Uriah the Hittite (laughs) referencing... Here we go. Okay, but anyway, anyway, he falls violently in love with this woman. Yes. 
and dispatched various emissaries to declare his passion and win her to approve his suit. But the virtuous lady received his advances with the utmost scorn. This untoward repulse greatly disconcerted the youth, and his health daily declined. As it does in medieval texts, when you're yes. in love and you're not getting, what's the word? Unrequited love kills people, is what I'm saying. But only in True. medieval texts. Probably not so much in real life. I mean, you can die of heartbreak. Like, that is that is a thing. Like, haven't you heard those stories of, like, couples where one of them dies and then the other one dies, like, a little bit later? Yeah. Because they can't live without one another? Like, that's a real thing. And your heartstrings can literally snap. Like, that's a real thing. But that's more like a severe medical condition. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think those two conditions are related. (laughs) No, (laughs) those are not. One is a poetic, poetic thing, and the other one is very much something that you should go to the ER about if you're not already dead. So anyway, he's dying of heartbreak. Yes. Nevertheless, he visited the lady oft, which availed him nothing. He was still despised. It chanced that on one occasion he went sorrowfully towards the church, and upon the way, an old woman accosted him. Oh my. You may remember the title is about the devices of old women. That's true. Is she a witch? I really hope she's a witch. I don't remember. Also, I'm assuming that the device, that the execrable device of old women, is that like chair lift that <laughs> gets you up the stairs. Oh, witches' brooms have changed so much. <laughs> I mean, that's a device of old women. You can't deny it. That's true. An old woman accosted him, who by pretended sanctity had long obtained an undue share of reverence and regard. I like that apparently this is just a perennial thing is that there are people hanging around church who pretend to be really holy just like for the prestige but really they're shitty people. I mean yes nowadays we call them Karens but sure. That's true. Wait really wait what? I mean like with it in no in like yeah in 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 church culture like the Karen is the same woman who you know, it's like the Jezebel character. I had not heard Karen used in that context before. Well, see, it's a church. It's an in-church group community meme. That makes sense. <laughs> I haven't been in a church in years. <laughs> well, that explains it. No, there is an entire subculture of Christian memes, which are incredibly wonderful. And some of them are quite intellectual, uh, especially in terms of like referencing Aquinas, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. Like, you are missing out on some quality memes. I believe it. But I don't <laughs> think I it would be worth some. it to go to church. <laughs> I'll see if I can find some good ones. Man, uh, we mo- in my everyday life, we mostly use Karen to refer to the women who get angry when we ask them to wear a mask at the- in the bookstore. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. It's also it's also the same type of woman who thinks that her, you know, baklava or whatever she's made is holier than everybody else's and, you know, or whose whose children are just so precious and pure that they cannot have done anything wrong in Sunday school. It's that that sort of yeah, right. lady. So same person, just different. It's the same person, different just context. different subculture. Yeah. 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 Now I want to really know like what the ancient Roman Karen was or like Jewish culture Karens? I don't know. I don't know what what the etymology of the name Karen is. Oh no, like I'm not talking about the etymology of the name. I just mean the meme. Oh. I don't know. Like what would an ancient Roman Karen look like? Or a medieval Karen? The Romans were very misogynistic, so they might have just said woman. 
True. But, like, who would the medievals have typified as a Karen? Marjorie Kemp. <laughs> okay, this is, a, this is a repeated thing, is that you have, you have slandered the name of Marjorie Kemp, and I am very interested to know what backstory there is with this. It's just accurate. Not <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. In, in her, like, autobiography, there's a whole section where she, like, goes off on random people she's traveling with because she doesn't <laughs> think they're being holy enough. That is very Karen of her, so... Sure, yes. And I think the last time we brought her up was about the idea of having a physical relationship with Jesus, which was yeah. totally her thing. <laughs> like she would she would talk about her visions of, of Jesus and they were very sexual. Ooh, that makes me so uncomfortable. Ooh. See if that's if that's her definition of holy, I think we can walk away from that one and be fine. I don't know. Now I think we need to do a, a few episodes on Marjorie Kemp. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I didn't know you hadn't read it. I haven't. I have not. All right. Yeah. See, now I want to. Now I want to make that joke about the difference between you know, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, and sorry, Daddy, I've been bad. Because <laughs> for Marjorie, were they different? That's a good question. I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, that is a tangent for another day. We can leave Marjorie rolling in her grave or whatever else she may be doing there. <laughs> All right. So anyway, we have this this old woman who appears holy and isn't. Yes. She demanded the cause of this youth's apparent uneasiness. It will nothing profit me to tell thee, said he. But, replied the old woman, as long as the sick man hides his malady from the physician, he cannot be cured. I'm trying to do a voice. I love it. 100%. I love it. She's also definitely a witch. She might be. I don't remember <laughs> how this story goes. Discover the wound, and it is not impossible, but a remedy may be found. With the aid of heaven, I will restore you to health. Thus urged, the youth made known to her his love for the lady. Is that all? said the beldam. I think beldam is like an archaic word for old woman. I mean... Bell meaning beautiful, right? Like a southern bell. Yeah, but it's spelled B-E-L-D-A-M, all one word. B-E-L? Like one L? One L. Huh. According to my quick Google, Beldam, uh, or Beldam, archaic. Beldam. A malicious and ugly woman, especially an old one, a witch. Ooh, I like that. So, see, she is a witch! I was right! Apparently, in Neil Gaiman's Coraline, it's the... Did you read Coraline? I did. I have read. I have read. Is it Coraline or Coraline? I've always said Coraline. I have no idea. Either way. Well, regardless, apparently it's the official title of the other mother is the Belda. Oh. How did I never notice that? Okay, to be fair, it was a, it's been a long time since I've read Coraline. Yeah, me too. Hmm. I like that. That is definitely a word to add to the dictionary. Yes. DM dictionary. Remind me, because I forget these words by the time we get to the end. I will grab my notebook. That's right, you usually have a notebook. I do, I generally try to. Let's see. Is that all? said the beldam. Return to your home. I will find a medicine that shall presently relieve you. Confiding in her assurances, he went his way and the other hers. It seemed she possessed a little dog, which she... Ab <laughs> what was Wait. that face? She possesses the little dog or a little dog? A little dog. Not like possess like devil. Like she she has a dog. No. Okay. Okay. That's fine. I thought you said the little dog. And I was like, there's a little dog now. I was really confused about like 
the specific thing about there being the little dog. Okay, sorry. I understand now. She's also got a dog. Yes. Which she obliged to fast for two successive days. On the third, she made bread of the flour of mustard and placed it before the pining animal. As soon as it had tasted the bread, the pungent bitterness caused the water to spring into its eyes, and the whole of that day tears flowed copiously from them. The old woman, accompanied by her dog, posted to the house of the lady whom the young man loved, and the opinion entertained of her sanctity secured her an honorable and gracious reception. As they sat together, the lady noticed the weeping dog and was curious to ascertain the cause. I mean, yes, that makes sense. If you see a crying dog, you get a little upset about it. Yeah. The crone told her not to inquire, for that it involved a calamity too dreadful to communicate. Such a remark, naturally enough, excited still more the curiosity of the fair questioner, and she earnestly pressed her to detail the story. This was what the old hag wanted. We get a lot of words for old woman here, and I don't know if it's the <laughs> translator. I, I feel like there aren't this many words for old woman in Latin. I don't know. I I feel like there, there definitely were some, because in the Amores, there's the woman who runs like the brothel, and sh- there's a couple different words that refer to her in very derogatory terms, mind you. But that makes sense, because that is also what is being done here. Yeah. So there were, there were quite a few different ways to demean old women. She said, oh, damn it, I'm going to have to do the voice for a while. <laughs> uh, this was what the old hag wanted. She said, that little dog was my daughter, too good and excellent for this world. She was beloved by a young man who, thrown into despair by her cruelty, perished for her love. My daughter, as a punishment for her hard-hearted conduct, was suddenly changed into the little dog respecting which you inquire. Okay, hold on. Can we unpack that? Yes. Because this is this is like some Howl's Moving Castle right here. It's been a long time since I've read that book. Well, there's, okay, so there's people turning into dogs, and there's the evil witch, and then there's Howl Pendragon, and there's Sophie who turns into an old woman. And anyway, it's fantastic, and you should definitely read it. And listeners, you should definitely read it. The film is very different than the book. I think the book is much, much better, but both are beautiful. Regardless of any of that, she's saying that the dog is her daughter who got Mm -hmm. turned into a dog Mm -hmm. by her? It does not. It's the passive voice. She was changed into a dog. By whom? No one knows. And this woman's a witch already. Presumably. Oh. I mean, she's got all the hallmarks of a witch. Yeah. So, okay. All right. That's interesting. Yeah, so so the narrative she's spinning here is that if someone dies of unrequited love, the person who cruelly refused to love them back is turned into a little dog. Okay, then. That checks out. <laughs> Which I'm not sure is a punishment. Yeah, actually, you're not wrong. But it would not be fun to be a dog... At the hands of this old woman. Yes, that's true. So. I don't know. My dog gets to nap on the couch all day, and she generally seems pretty happy, so. Okay, but 21st century dogs are at the height of luxury. I don't think medieval dogs were accorded such, you know, treasures. Unless they were in, like, the royal court. Yeah. Oh, dude, I one of the things that always blows my mind. Those little... Fluffy dogs with the really long hair. I forget which breed of them, but one of the breeds of, like, fluffy dogs with long hair. Like the Pomeranians? 
It might be Pomeranians, but something okay. similar to that. Okay. The reason they're, they're stupid looking ones. The reason they're fluffy was because they were bred specifically to sit on the laps of aristocrats and the fleas would be attracted to the fluffier dog instead of the person. Oh my gosh. They were literal flea magnets. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is just justifying my dislike of small dogs. <laughs> oh, see, okay, listeners, I am a cat person, and as a medievalist studying magic, I feel that that is something that should be obvious, but but I do love dogs. So what you're saying I is I just you're love a cats witch. more. Yes, I thought that was a given. <laughs> I need a familiar. This witch has a dog. I prefer cats, you know? Fair. But regardless. Okay, so we've got this dog. Yes. And we've got the story. And we've got this unrequited romance going on. Yes. And saying these words, a few crocodile tears started into her eyes and she continued, Alas, how often does this mute memorial recall my lost daughter, once so beautiful and virtuous? Now, oh, what is she now? Degraded from the state of humanity, she exists only to pine away in wretchedness and waste her life in tears. She can receive no comfort, and they who would administer it can but weep for her distresses, which surely are without a parallel. Oh my gosh. The lady, astonished and terrified at what she heard, secretly exclaimed, secretly exclaimed, Alas! I too am beloved, and he who loves me is in like manner at the point of death. And then, instigated by her fears, discovered the whole circumstance of the old woman who immediately answered, Beautiful lady, do not disregard the anguish of this young man. Look upon my unhappy daughter and be warned in time. As she is, you may be. Oh, returned the credulous lady, my good mother, counsel me. What would you have me do? Not for worlds would I become as she is. Why then, answered the treacherous old woman. Of course. Send directly for the youth and give him the love he covets. No! 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 Ugh. The lady said, May I entreat your holiness to fetch him? There might be some scandal circulated if another went. My dear daughter, said she, I suffer with you and will presently bring him hither. <laughs> I suffer with you, sure, lady. Also, when you when she says that she secretly exclaims this to herself, I, I immediately thought of the office. Okay, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I, I... Like this, in, this entire story has now become an episode of the office, where whenever she secretly exclaims something, it's just one of those talking heads moments. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of it more as like um, that moment in a play where everyone stops moving and like the one person faces the audience and gives a little speech. Like Hamlet. To be fair, you could argue that it's the same thing. You could. What is the difference, really? They're both addressing the audience. And I have to admit that when I think of soliloquies, I don't think of Hamlet. I think of Groucho Marx going, <laughs> pardon me while I have a strange interlude and then addressing the camera. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay, so the old woman's gone to get the, the, the guy. She arose and returned with him, and thus the youth obtained his mistress. And so, through the old woman's means, the lady was led to adultery. The end. Wait, that's it? That's it. What about her husband? We had that whole thing where her husband went away. Yeah, but that's just to set up the, the my husband's out of town thing. I mean, yeah, I guess, but usually that ends in, like, some horrible, gruesome end for the woman. Oh. 
This is addressed in the footnote. Oh. <laughs> All right. So there is a footnote at the very end of this tale that has a couple things added. The demon hunter in Boccaccio is brought to mind by this story. We should do the Decameron sometime because I didn't know there's a demon hunter. I'm not recalling the demon hunter, but we definitely should. There the lady's apprehensions grew so powerfully upon her that to prevent the like heavy doom from falling on her, she studied and therein bestowed all the night season how to change her hatred into kind love, which at length she fully attained. Decameron, 5th day, November 8th. The same story occurs in the 12th chapter of Alphonsus, of clerical discipline. It appears in an English garb amongst a collection of Aesop's fables published in 1658. Mr. Ellis, or rather Mr. Ducey, in his analysis of Alphonsus, has not noticed this translation. And then, in brackets... Oh boy, okay. Alright, because the, the translator and the editor are two separate people. Right. And I'm not. I'm also not sure if it's the editor or the translator who decided to cut all the exegesis short. That's fair. Because apparently this was published previously, and then this is an edited version of that. Okay, that makes sense. I would bet it was the editor. Mr. Swan, who's the translator, thought fit to alter the termination of this story by making the husband return suddenly and kill his wife and her lover. This, hey! he thought, <laughs> afforded a better moral. I have omitted this interpolation. Signed, Editor. Oh my gosh. I am both wonderfully vindicated by the fact that I am not the only person who was expecting the wife to have a gruesome death, but also slightly, like, I am also ashamed that I did think of that because this was the one moment in which the original did not the woman. Yep. And yet, and yet, Mr. Yeah. Swan. Apparently you think like an old Victorian man. <laughs> who was like... I blame the patriarchy. Shouldn't the husband come back and kill them? Let's just put that in. I mean, I mean, <laughs> if, if there are certain patterns which are to be expected, you cannot fault me for expecting them. That's true. And we can always blame the patriarchy. Oh, gosh. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Oh, I say that facetiously, but at the same time, it's amazing that he decided to further moralize the story by killing the woman. Yep. Wow. Well, I mean, that's that was pretty common back in the day. Yeah. Wait, in which period are we talking here? In the 19th century, some people who collected folktales would sometimes alter them to make them better uh, morally. Oh, Yes, I thought you meant the killing of women. No. I was going to say, I was like, hold on a minute. I mean, that's pretty common in all days. True. True. Oh, man. The fact that that even needs to be pointed out as a moral is entirely frustrating. Ugh. Okay. Well, it's good to know that the original doesn't actually kill the woman. She's just sort of left to have her affair and go get on with her life, I suppose. Yeah. And I do appreciate the fact that the blame is not being apportioned onto the woman. No, it's not even her fault. This is the devices of old women. Yeah. To be fair, it still does blame a woman. The woman. <laughs> yeah. Instead of the man for cheating in the first place or and you know, trying to get other people to cheat. But I guess it takes two to tango, but apparently in this story it takes three. Yeah. What street smart shall we get from this? Don't trust crying dogs. There you go. Don't trust crying dogs and women who are very clearly witches. 
She does have all the hallmarks of a witch. We can come back to street smarts at the end. True, true. Sorry. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes. So, what is our next tale? Tale 29 of Corrupt Judgment. This is a very short one. Okay. An emperor established a law that every judge convicted of a partial administration of justice should undergo the severest penalties. It happened that a certain judge, bribed by a large sum, gave a notoriously corrupt decision. This circumstance reaching the ears of the emperor, he commanded him to be flayed. I mean, that would certainly do it. The sentence was immediately executed, and the skin of the culprit nailed upon the seat of judgment as an awful warning to others to avoid a similar offense. The emperor afterwards bestowed the same dignity, i.e. the judicial office, right, upon the son of the deceased judge, and on presenting the appointment <laughs> said, Thou wilt sit to administer justice upon the skin of thy delinquent sire. Should anyone <gasps> incite thee to do evil, remember his fate, Look down upon thy father's skin, lest his fate befall thee. The end. That's brutal. That's so bad. Like, hey, kid, you're going to get a really great job, but also you're going to have to sit in a chair made of the skin of your dead dad. Yep. Ugh. A skin chair. Now, I think the real question is, would this be an appropriate way to deal with members of Congress? <laughs> You know, the way that 2020 is going, we've already got a plague. Hmm? So. Like, just uh, imagine if we could tell, like, the next uh, congressperson from Kentucky, if you feel tempted towards corruption, just look down at the skin of Mitch McConnell, which you sit upon. <laughs> Oof. Oh. I feel like that would be a really more convicting way than having heads on pikes. Mm-hmm. Because heads on pikes rot. But you, if you, like, yeah. treat the skin, it, it's, it's leather and it'll just last. It'll, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Something to consider next time you vote. Yes. We should get that on the ballot initiative. Yes, absolutely. Skin chairs. <laughs> oh, man. Let's see. Skipping a few. Tale 37. Okay. Of lifting up the mind to heaven. Pliny mentions, then there's a footnote. This story does not appear in Pliny. <laughs> God bless. I love the ahistoricity of these tales. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, don't worry, don't worry. We're citing it. And then it's just, no, no. It doesn't nope, exist. Nope, nope. See, is that worse than plagiarism? Do you think? Like, is it worse to take someone else's stuff without citing it? Or worse to cite something that they didn't that write? That doesn't, yeah. Like, it's either, it's either no attribution or false attribution. I feel like it depends on the context. True. Both are wrong, listeners, and we do not support either. Although you are welcome to cite me as long as you're saying something particularly wise. There you go. We do like our gnomic sayings. Anyway, Pliny, Pliny mentions the story of an <laughs> eagle that had built her nest upon a lofty rock, whose young, a kind of serpent called Purina footnote. There is no such monster in Pliny. Fair enough. Also, this is not just a piranha being spelled wrong, is it? No. No, it's a, it's a, it's a snake called Purna, P-E-R-N-A. Oh, okay. Piranhas are New World animals. These guys have no idea what they are. Well, I was just checking. 
I just wanted to make triply sure because we did have the Vikings who went over to the New World. So I was just making sure they didn't somehow figure out that piranhas actually existed. That would be trippy if like the Vikings went all the way down to like Brazil or something. We're like, we brought back these angry fish. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Because there is an Icelandic bestiary in Trinity, which has dragons and then crocodiles. Like they are right next to each other. And they correctly identify the crocodile as a crocodile, but it's also next to dragons because they're both extraordinarily scary dragon creatures. Yeah, they're clearly related. Obviously. So I'm just making sure because the Vikings knew about crocodiles, so who knows? They may have known about piranhas. Crocodiles uh, can be found in the old world, though. Can they? Yeah, in the Nile. What? I never made that connection before. Oh my gosh. I think. Yeah. How have I never realized that? Crocodiles are a very, very old species. They're that's true. They're everywhere. Okay, but like bears were also everywhere, and now they're not really in Europe anymore. That's true. Because they were all hunted out. But yeah, no, they were old world crocodiles. This is just giving me so many ideas. I think alligators might be new world though. Let me check. Ooh, you're probably right. Oh nope. The two extant species of alligator are the American alligator and the Chinese alligator. Huh. Oh, it's like the two the two types of elephants, huh? See, now I'm just picturing like a like a a Viking version of Peter Pan, where there's Captain Hook, except he's a Viking, and then a giant crocodile who's going yes. after <laughs> the Viking. And uh, according to Wikipedia, crocodiles can be found in tropical regions on all continents except Antarctica, because it has no tropical regions. Right. Or it says Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Australia, and I, I think that's all of them. Africa, Asia. Well, I'm, I'm counting Europe as part of Eurasia. Oh, okay. Yes. Fair enough. So, yeah. That was a that was a tangent, but we're back. Well, I done learned something today. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. my Kentucky roots coming back. I keep forgetting that you were in Kentucky at some point, because I always just think of you oh, as yes. being from Alaska. I mean, I definitely prefer being from Alaska, but there is a little bluegrass in my veins. That sounds painful. Yes, extraordinarily. Anyway, there is a type of serpent called Perna attempting to destroy an eagle's nest, but finding that they were beyond the serpent's reach, she stationed herself to windward, and emitted a large quantity of poisonous matter so as to infect the atmosphere and poison the young birds. Okay, this is a very smart snake. But the eagle, led by the unerring power of instinct, took this precaution. This is also a smart eagle. <laughs> she fetched a peculiar sort of stone called achetes, which, footnote, is the Latin name for agate. People are persuaded that it availeth much against the sting of venomous spiders and scorpions. And that actually is in Pliny. Hmm, that's good to know. Yeah, stones had a lot of curative powers. Which she deposited in that quarter of the nest which was opposite to the wind. And the stone, by virtue of certain occult properties which it possessed, prevented the malicious intention of the serpent from taking effect. The end. Is there any exegesis on this one? Yes. I'm assuming this is also cut short, but what's remaining says this. My beloved, the eagle is any man of quick perception and aspiring mind. The young birds are good works, which the devil, that is, the serpent, 
endeavors to destroy by temptation. Oh my gosh. This is like Sunday school. The rock on which the eagle built is Christ. Oh my gosh. Okay, why is it not Peter, you guys? Why is it not Peter? Because Peter is the rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. That is what Christ has said. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It took me forever to realize that was a pun, by the way. On this rock I will build my church. Oh yeah. For those of you who don't know, the background to this is Peter's name comes from Petra, which means rock. Yeah. So Christ is making a joke. And so you could argue that the foundation of the Catholic Church is built on a joke. And I will leave that one there. All right. Another very short one. Tale 38 of the precaution necessary to prevent error. In the reign of the Emperor Henry II... Okay, which emperor is this? Emperor of where? Let me see if there was a Holy Roman Emperor named Henry II. I would like to know. They really are playing fast and loose with these emperors. Yes. They're just picking them out at this point. Okay, there was. In the late 10th century, early 11th century, Henry II ruled the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, wow. Okay. Remind me when this was originally compiled or, like, written. It was probably compiled around the beginning of the 13th century. Okay, so there's a good 300 years or so between between those two. Okay, okay. Because we're just, we're just jumping between, like, 59 AD and, you know, 10th century, so... Yeah, and also, they, they've clearly decided the Holy Roman Empire counts as the Romans. Yes, I mean, of course, it's, it's in the name. All right, so in the reign of Henry II, a certain city was besieged by its enemies. Before they had reached the walls, a dove alighted in the city, around whose neck the letter was suspended, which bore the following inscription, The generation of dogs is at hand. It will prove a quarrelsome breed. Procure aid and defend yourselves resolutely against it. The end. Wait, that's the end? That, that's the whole story, yeah. I have no idea what to take from this, except that you should definitely use that letter in yeah, your D&D campaign. Like, yes, absolutely take that letter. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there... that's why I marked that story. <laughs> is there any exegesis for that? My beloved, the dove is the Holy Spirit, which thus descended on Christ. <laughs> is that it? That's it. <laughs> I mean, okay. Like, again, it's, all of these have surely been cut short. But... Oh, for sure. The, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay. I didn't realize that the Holy Spirit was a messenger pigeon, but okie doke. Oh, amazing. I am constantly impressed by the medievals and their wonderful, very incredibly creative exegesis. Yes. I've got a bunch of short ones in this section, so I'll just... Keep going until we start running out of time. Okay. Tale 42 of Want of Charity. Okay. Valerius records, footnote, there is no foundation in Valerius Maximus for this story. God bless. Valerius records that he once saw in the city of Rome a very lofty column on which were inscribed four letters, three times repeated, three P's, three S's, three R's, and three F's. Okay. When the letters had attracted attention, he exclaimed, Whoa, whoa, I see confusion to the city. The nobles, hearing what had been done, said to him, Master, let us understand thy conceit. He answered, 
The meaning of the inscription is thus. Pater Patriae Perditur, the father of his country, is lost. Sapientia Sicum Sustolitur, wisdom has departed with him. Ruent Reges Romae, the kings of Rome perish. Pharaoh Flama Fama, by the sword, by fire, by famine. The event afterward fully approved the veracity of the prediction. The end. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) These short and sweet ones are very quick about their meanings. Yeah. I will say this is the second time that we've had repeating letters that have prophesied something. Yeah, I think I mentioned it when we had the bloody sigil, is that this is a recurring motif. Yeah, yeah. And that at least the bloody sigil was helpful enough to have, like, around the outside the um, what the letters actually stood for. Whereas in this case, it's just like, Valerius saw it and, like, guessed. <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't divine inspiration? I mean, I guess it could be. <laughs> but depending on when Valerius Maximus lived, that divine inspiration may have come from Athena. That's true. Yeah, nothing says it has to be Christian inspiration. Valerius Maximus worked during the reign of Tiberius, who was the immediate successor to Augustus Caesar, so definitely pagan times. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that means that at this point, well, rather, at the point in which this tale was penned, it would have been probably considered a necromantic prophecy. Yes, because there's a lot of different ways the prophecy was understood. And I, who was it? It was it was Aquinas who said that there were different ways of interpreting dreams and different ways of, of working divination. And only some of them were evil and done by demons. And some of them were okay. I like that. Yeah. So he, there were there were very specific ways that you could perform divination in certain ways that you couldn't because it was powered by demons and we all know that you can't do that. Yeah. Also, if we accept the chronology of the calendar, which we know is probably wildly off, but the medievals didn't, Valerius was working while Jesus was still, like, alive and a teenager. So it couldn't have been him because he was incarnate somewhere else. True. True. Okay, but the spirit was still around. That's true. You know, the the Trinity is a three in one. So just because Jesus's line is busy doesn't mean that the spirit can't answer. All of this theology is just over my head. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so we've had that story. We've had a couple fantastic short ones. What's our next one? I marked this with a special post-it, by which I mean Ooh. a full-size post-it. Ooh. Because when I was doing some side research on the Gesta Romanorum a few weeks ago, I found this listed as an example of a folktale which was very popular throughout the world in the Middle Ages. Or not throughout the world, throughout the medieval world. Right. And probably does extend out of Europe. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so widespread. This is a story that is often depicted in medieval and Renaissance art. It is found in the Gesta Romanorum, but the earliest recorded version we have dates back to the commentary on the Babylonian Talmud. Oh, wow. Which is late antiquity. Yeah. So this is an old one. Yeah. And almost certainly, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost certainly this had an oral tradition before. That goes way back. 
What you should know is that the advice being given, like the problem solving that's being done in this story, has been attributed to Solomon in some versions. And in the Talmudic version, obviously it's done by a rabbi. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Let's just say the rabbi's solution in that version is much less distressing than oh, this boy. one. And we'll Okay. So I'll I'll explain the difference once we once we do it. Side note really quick. And I'm sure that there is a well-researched answer to this, but I have not delved into it yet. Why do you think Solomon has been attributed to so much overtly demonic magic? I think it's just a matter of attributing it to the wisest person around. You know, like Solomon knew everything, so obviously he knew this. That's fair. Plus, I think, aren't there stories in the Old Testament of him having like a demon-worshipping wife or something who... Like, he, he would have been influenced by. That's fair. I mean, he had quite a few wives, and by quite a few, I mean several hundred. So I'm, I'm sure, like, many of them were pagan and did not follow the Hebrew god. It just always sort of amazed me. I'm like, okay, so if Solomon, like, built up the temple to the Lord, and, you know, like, David, like, you know, the whole David thing, and he's, you know, holy people, and blah, blah, blah. Like, why necromancy? And I just like the only way that I've come up with thinking about it is like you put the holiness and the demonology so close together that they just sort of rub up against each other. I don't know. I just wanted to pitch that question because it's something that I'm very interested in in terms of the human mind considering both holiness, like the sacred and the profane, and just smushing them together as close as possible. If I had to guess at the explanation behind it, I would say that Solomon probably already had a reputation for knowing magic because yeah he's wise yeah and that includes knowing magic right and then once uh we moved into the the firmly christian era and it was decided that all magic was evil that didn't go away they just decided that solomon knew evil magic i mean that checks out yeah that totally checks out one of the things i do remember about the bible from my yeah. days of actually attending any kind of church is that it makes the basic assumption that magic works. Yes, it absolutely does. And that a mage or a ma magus or whatever can actually be just as competent as someone performing miracles. Yeah. It just oh. comes from somewhere else. Exactly. The sources are just different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I guess I'm just fascinated with the idea that humans really enjoy taking dark things that we consider evil and things that we consider extremely holy and putting them together. Like, you know, horror films that are set in Gothic churches and, and stuff like that. I'm, I love the human brain is fascinated with that. And it's interesting to me that that goes back to Solomon. But anyway, that is a side note. So we're getting into the story about this either rabbi or Solomon who comes up with a gruesome response to a thing. In this case, it is neither a rabbi nor Solomon but okay. I just want you to know that in other versions it is. Fair enough. There was a wise and rich king who possessed a beloved but not a loving wife. She had three illegitimate sons who proved ungrateful and rebellious to their reputed parent. In due time, she brought forth another son whose legitimacy was undisputed. And after arriving at a good old age, he died and was buried in the royal sepulcher of his fathers. So, just to be clear, the he in that sentence is the king and not the legitimate son. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. So, does this imply that the first two sons are illegitimate? Yes. 
Okay. Because it doesn't overtly state that, but it's implied. It, no, it does. She had oh, three does. illegitimate sons who proved ungrateful okay. and rebellious. My brain just skipped over that bit. Yes. I just yeah. I just picked up on the whole ungrateful bit. Yeah, no, there are three illegitimate sons and one legitimate and son. the one legitimate son. Okay. Who is the youngest because this is a fairy tale. Yes, of course. I mean, also Joseph. Like, we do, we do have the motif of not only God, but the patriarch skipping over the oldest son, you know, Cain and Abel, and Joseph and his brothers and skipping to the youngest son. Oh, I thought you meant Joseph, Mary's husband. Oh, no, I have no idea how many no, siblings you, he jo had. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat is who we're talking yes. about. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, point. Yeah. The death of the old king caused great strife amongst his surviving sons about the right of succession. All of them advanced a claim, and none would relinquish it to the other. The three first presuming on their priority in birth, and the last upon his legitimacy. So apparently, like, he knows that all of his brothers are illegitimate. And he's there saying, like, I'm the only one who's actually the king's son. And that's, like, his claim. Yeah, makes sense. In this strait, they agreed to refer the absolute decision of their cause to a certain honorable knight of the late king. When this person, therefore, heard their difference, he said, Follow my advice, and it will greatly benefit you. Draw from its sepulchre the body of the deceased monarch. Oh no. I already am uncomfortable with this. <laughs> this never goes well. Yeah, I'm going to send you a picture later, because this, this <gasps> is what I'm looking at while I'm reading this, is, is one of the examples of this story being depicted in art. Oh my gosh. Because this is like, this is the beginnings of necromancy here. It's like, if someone's like, hey... Dig up your dead dad. Like, this doesn't this doesn't go well, you guys. Prepare, each of you. It's, go it's not going where you think it's going. Oh, boy. Prepare, each of you, a bow and single shaft, and whoever transfixes the heart of his father shall obtain the kingdom. So they're going to shoot their dead dad. Yep. I am now sending you the picture. Or, I'm sending you a link. Oh, boy. Okay, I'm excited to see this. Oh, that is so weird. Oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I know, it's a little distressing, isn't it? Why Why didn't they dress him? Why is the king not in any clothes? <laughs> they don't want to ruin good clothes by putting them on a corpse that you're going to shoot. <laughs> yeah, clothes are but... expensive, it's the Middle Ages. Yeah, but they're still going to bury their dad in in his clothes, aren't they? Like... I, isn't that why ghosts wear sheets? Because they were the dead used to just be buried in shrouds instead of clothing. I don't actually know, but still, they wouldn't like they wouldn't even put like a tunic on him. Nah. Wow. Hey, at least they gave him underwear. Yeah, they gave him underwear and the crown. I guess yeah, so you know he's crown. the king. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, you know that meme where it's like you feel more naked when you're not wearing anything, but you are wearing socks. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's the same thing, except for crowns. But yeah, no, he's he's not wearing anything except for underwear, trousers, and his crown. And there's some there's some blood dribbling down his mouth, so you know he's dead. Yep, yep, yep. Also, this image is from Wikimedia Commons, so we can put it on the blog. Oh, good. <laughs> wow, that is, I'm impressed. The council was approved. The body was taken from its repository and bound to a tree. Which is what we see in the in the picture. So the council approved of this. No, no, the council with an S. The advice. Oh, okay. I was gonna say like they have. This, there's more than four people agreeing to this. Okay. The arrow of the first son 
wounded the king's right hand, on which, as if the contest were determined, they proclaimed him heir to the throne. But the second arrow went nearer and entered the mouth, so that he too considered himself the undoubted lord of the kingdom. However, the third perforated the heart itself, and consequently imagined that his claim was fully decided, and his succession sure. So, first off, we're learning that these guys can't shoot. Well, they might be further away than is depicted in the picture, where the okay. uh, where they've Fair drawn enough. their bows and the ends <laughs> of the arrow are actually like up against the dead king. I'm gonna shoot him point blank. I mean, he didn't specify a distance. That's true. So, like, if, okay. I, th- I feel like if this were a a more traditional fairy tale, the answer would be just to walk up with the arrow and, and just jab it. Yeah, yeah, jab it in the heart. Ugh. Okay, so the third guy got it in the heart. Yes. It now came to the turn of the fourth and last son to shoot. For some reason, uh, the translator or the editor or the typesetter or someone has put a question mark at the end of that sentence. Okay. But he broke forth into a lamentable cry and with eyes swimming in tears said, Oh, my poor father, have I then lived to see you the victim of an impious contest? Thine own offspring lacerate thy unconscious clay? Far, oh, far be it from me to strike thy venerated form, whether living or dead. I mean, thank goodness somebody's saying it, but also this feels like a Cordelia move. Yes, exactly. He's like, oh, but I can't tell you because I just, I love you so much. It's like, this is not helping your case. Future Mac here. Upon re-listening to this, I figured I'd better... Add in a clarification that we are talking about Shakespeare Cordelia and not Buffy Cordelia. Thank you. No sooner had he uttered these words than the nobles of the realm, together with the whole people, unanimously elected him to the throne. I want to know how they took a poll of the whole people that quickly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> See, okay, but now, now I just get the picture of like them gathering the local kingdom around and being like, hey, you want to watch us shoot our dead dad? (laughs) This is in the Hippodrome. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. But I guess that makes sense, because if everyone is watching you, you know, play darts with your dad's dead body, then the one guy who's like, I'm not, I'm not taking part in this, then you're you're pretty much like, yeah, we like you, we like you better. All right. And depriving the three barbarous wretches of their rank and wealth, expelled them forever from the kingdom. Okay, kind of harsh. Yeah, and that's the end. So, a couple notes on this. First, we have a footnote that tells us that uh, the illegitimate sons who are rebellious is, quote, proof of the oriental structure of these stories, because in Persian tales, according to Herodotus, a rebellious son is assumed to be illegitimate. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. In in terms of how it would be described, especially in oral tradition. And here's our bit of exegesis real quick. Oh, good. My beloved, that wise and rich king is the king of kings and lord of lords who joined himself to our flesh as to a beloved wife. But in going after other gods, it forgot the love due to him in return and brought forth by illicit connection three sons, viz., Pagans, Jews, and heretics. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The first wounded the right hand, that is, the doctrine of Christ, by persecutions. The second the mouth, when they gave Christ vinegar and gall to drink. And the third wounded, and continued to wound, the heart, 
while they strive by every sophistical objection to deceive the faithful. The fourth son is any good Christian. Oh my gosh. Oh, they're so clever about coming up with this exegesis. Mm-hmm. Which, again, not in the original, because, again, the original, the oldest version that we have is Jewish. So the original right. is not definitely not Christian. No. Yeah, so this oh, is definitely wow. tacked on afterwards. That's amazing. So we have the pagans as a big group, and then the Jews, and then the heretics. Yes. Wow. Ugh. Which, I mean, almost may... No, that that actually completely makes sense in terms of um, medieval thought. Oh, it totally tracks. Uh, people who do not worship the one God, mm-hmm. people who worship the one God but have not accepted Jesus, and people who worship the one God and Jesus but do it wrong. That's yeah. pretty much everyone. Yeah, and and there was a lot of anti-Semitism during the medieval period, especially on Christians' behalf. Like, the Christians especially would be anti-Semitic towards the Jews. Oh, yeah. Be- because there was a huge... There was a huge thing about, well, these guys killed our savior. So, but, like, that was the point, you guys. Like, he had to die for your salvation. That's part of the story. Okay. Anyway. So, anyway, there was a there was a really big anti-Semitic portion of the population. It was... It was basically blatantly okay to be anti-Semitic as well as anti-pagan. And I would sort of hesitate to say, but I would wager without anything backing me up here that anti-Semitism was probably more prevalent than anti-paganism. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Like, again, I can't cite that, but there are a lot of, at least in, in Northwestern Europe, there's a lot of, like, stories about the pagan ancestors and how they're noble but doomed. Right. But, so I yeah. feel like there was a lot, there was some like sympathy for pagans because they're like, oh, remember when we didn't have these stupid rules? Right. Well, there, I mean, there's also that and there's also the idea of, shall we reuse the, the phrase, the noble savage, mm-hmm. where they didn't know about Christ. So you can't really blame them, but the Jews knew and they still crucified Christ. So we can totally blame them. They're a perfect scapegoat. Yeah. One story that is bizarre enough to, uh, I think, make a really interesting episode, but that I haven't brought up because Ooh. it's wildly anti-Semitic. Oh, wow. Is uh, the old English Elena. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've only done a little bit of research on that one, but yeah. Yep. It's one of the ones that we translated in Dr. Hughes's old English class. Oh, wow. And it's the story of Elena or Helen or Helena. Constantine's mother, Emperor Constantine's mother, going to discover the true cross. Mm-hmm. And there's some... It's uncomfortable <laughs> at points. Because Ooh. obviously, where do you go to find the true cross? Judea. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that that is something to take into account when you consider these texts. And then on top of that, I mean, like we're seeing in the Leech book, there's a lot of pagan undertones that were just switched over to mm-hmm. Christian you know, belief systems, but that wasn't so much the case with Judaic tradition. Those cultures still remained pretty separate, whereas pagan tradition was incorporated more. So there was definitely still anti-pagan sentiments, and the church would definitely prosecute, but it wasn't as overt as anti-Semitic behavior. Once the church became kind of evangelical and started converting people it kind of lost its roots as a sect of Judaism. And yeah. so 
the two traditions diverged wildly. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of, let's talk about the Talmudic version. Yes, I'm excited. Which you will notice is much less distressing, as I said. <laughs> okay, good. There was a man who heard his wife saying to her daughter, Why are you not careful in your unlawful acts? I have ten sons, and only one is from your father. Oh my gosh. So yeah, so she's telling her daughter, like, Look, be more subtle when you sleep around. Oh Check out how gosh. well I've done with it. Wow, you could write a whole paper about that. Yeah. When he was dying, the father, he said, I bequeath all my properties to one son, as he did not know which one was his. Mm. And as they did not know to which of the sons, the case came to Rabbi Benaha. I don't know how to pronounce this. It's B-N-A-H-A. Benah, yeah. Ben-aha, I think. Because Ben, it means son of, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but isn't it usually hyphenated or, ha or have a vowel in there? Yeah. Because Hebrew is not written with any vowels. Like it doesn't... That's true. Okay. So, take it as you will. Don't come to us on how to pronounce your Hebrew. The case came to this rabbi, who advised him to go and knock on the father's grave until he should come and explain whom he meant. Nine of these sons did so, but the one who was his did not. Then Rabbi Benaha decided that all the estates should be given to this one. Oh, that makes so much more sense. That's so yeah. much nicer. Yeah, it's exactly. It's the same story, except instead of shooting the corpse with arrows, you go and you like knock on the grave. Wow. And the one son who's like, that would be disrespectful, is still the, the winner. Right, exactly. And it shows, I, I think, depending on how you want to read into the Hebrew tradition, it would show that the son already knows what's his and doesn't need to verify it. And therefore, mm -hmm. you know, it proves proves his worth, which is like, it's this... It's similar to the story of the woman who's like, no, 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 don't cut my kid in half. Right. You know, I'd rather just have my kid be safe. And therefore, she's the mother. In addition to the tradition or the reason that the father needs to give his inheritance to one son is that in Hebrew tradition, inheritance was not apportioned out Mm -hmm. The way that the medievals would have done it in terms of in in terms of sections, or the way that we would do it in terms of hopefully splitting it fairly equally between children, everything was generally given to one son. So you had to figure, or it was like two shares. So if you had if you had three kids, you would split your inheritance four ways, and the first son would get two shares, and the two other sons would get. That makes One sense. I was, I was going to say, the structure of the story seems to assume that there's a possibility that it'll get split up. Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, because the father's will said everything goes to one son, which yeah. implies that there's, there's a possibility that it wouldn't. That it wouldn't, yeah. So I believe, I believe the tradition is that a double portion goes to the eldest son, and he, he takes on his father's role, whereas the rest of the sons would go out and find other trades and other things to do, mm -hmm. which sort of came over into medieval tradition as well, in terms of the oldest takes on whatever the father does, and the other two, you know, are, they'll go into the clergy, they go into the military, or their apprentices, generally speaking. Or law. Law was another option. I feel like that's fairly, I don't want to say universal, but widespread, that the oldest children take on their parents' roles, because they're the oh, oldest. Yeah. Like, they, yeah. they've had the yeah. most time to learn them, they have, like, more maturity than the others. 
But generally speaking, it's also, it's in a portion of honor as well to take on your father's role and your father's responsibility. So if your father did become incapacitated, then you would take on that role and that responsibility in the Hebrew tradition. So I guess he knew that his sons were illegitimate. And so he's like, I'm only going to give this to the one son that is legitimate, which also makes sense. Mm, the story starts by saying, or the Talmudic one starts by saying he, he, he overhears his wife and his daughter talking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. He's like, I'm only going to give my inheritance to the one kid. Yeah, and also, as much as I say that it makes logical sense, I'm doing that means I'm doing a very bad job as eldest son because I have not even tried to take up my parents' trade of teaching music. I mean, we've come a we've come a very long way and have chosen different routes since the medieval period. Fair. My sister teaches music, but I don't. There you go. To be fair, I I don't think that I would have been able to take on my father's role, like as a pilot. Don't you know how to pilot? Yeah, I do. I do. But I mean, back in the day, first off, they didn't have planes. But if they did, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't let women fly. Fair. <laughs> I mean, now you could. Now I could. Yeah, definitely. Almost did, to be fair. I assume there was a reason you were taking those flight lessons. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, there's there's a difference between being a private pilot and being a commercial pilot. There's There's a lot of steps in between. <laughs> So yeah, I've got the I've got the beginning stages done, but I'm taking a brief interlude to continue my medieval studies and who knows, maybe I'll be a commercial pilot one day. Anyway. Anyway, how much time mm, okay, do you want to do one more story or go to the segments? Let's do let's do one more and then go to the segments. Because they're fairly short. Tale forty four. I'm stepping back one because I, I skipped this one to make sure we fit in the king getting shot. Oh, yes. Okay. Before Tiberius ascended the throne, he was remarkable for his wisdom. His eloquence was brilliant and his military operations invariably successful. But when he became emperor, his nature seemed to have undergone a perfect revolution. All martial enterprises were abandoned, and the nation groaned beneath his relentless and persevering tyranny. He put to death his own sons, and therefore it was not to be expected that he should spare those of others. Yeah, that does check out. Yeah. <laughs> the patricians threatened, and the people cursed him. Formerly, he had been noted for temperance, but now he showed himself the most intemperate of a dissolute age, insomuch as he obtained the surname of Bacchus. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and then we have a footnote. The orgies of Tiberius might qualify him for this title, but it does not appear that it was ever conferred. Seneca said pleasantly of this emperor that, quote, He never was drunk but once. And that once was all his life. Oh, ooh! You need that's an, good, right? You need an ice cap for that burn. It happened that a certain artificer fabricated a plate of glass, which, being exhibited to the emperor, he attempted, but ineffectually, to break it. Presumably because that was like part of the presentation was see if you can break this, not just ah, you have a glass plate, gonna smash it. <laughs> Although you never know with Tiberius. It bent, however, beneath his efforts, and the artificer, applying a hammer and working upon the glass as upon copper, presently restored it to its level. Tiberius inquired by what art this was effected, and the other replied that it was a secret, not to be disclosed. Immediately he was ordered to the block, the emperor <laughs> alleging that if such an art should be practiced, gold and silver would be reckoned as nothing. I mean, that checks out. 
And apparently this appears in Agrippa and in Pliny, quote, or rather from his transcriber Isidore. That might be Isidore of Seville. I was going to say, we know him. But so this is actually from uh, classical sources. So that's the story. Okay. Oh, and here, here's the exegesis if you're curious. Oh, wow. My beloved, Tiberius is any man who in poverty is humble and virtuous, but raised to affluence forgets every honest feeling. The artificer is any poor man who presents the rich with unacceptable gifts. It doesn't actually really? add anything to the story, because that's no. just a summation of who these characters are. Yeah, but also you're saying that, like, you're implying that all poor people are tricksters who should die. Possibly. Although, the artificer isn't a trickster. He's just a good artificer. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a good magician. He dies because Tiberius thinks this type of glass would be dangerous for the economy, so he's gotta kill him. <laughs> oh no! I have a brilliant new way to save our economy! Oh, no! That would undermine our industry. Kill him! I feel like that can be applied to a great many things. I feel like this exegesis can be applied to several industries. Yes. Oh, perhaps a more modern exegesis should be, should be brought to bear for this story. Tiberius is Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> I stand by this exegesis. Oh, dear. Now I'm going to think of this every single time. I, I see anybody comment anything about the capitalist system or anything about the economy. Yeah. And be like, oh, that artificer. Uh, in in pre-capitalist times, there were already some serious forebodings of the kind of greed that we would see today. To be fair, I think the Romans had a lot of that kind of greed already going on. Yeah. Like they didn't have the same kind of capitalist infrastructure as we do, mm -mm. but they were not far off from the same kind of ideas. Like the way that I think about it is that we have a lot of cheap plastics and stuff, but when you think about ancient Rome, especially in its glory days, you have to realize that the public buildings were made of marble and coated in gold. Like the Colosseum was coated in marble and they had free feasts for everybody all the time. And if you're surrounded by all of that kind of wealth, but you have nothing, it's not that far off from where we are today when you look at people like Jeff Bezos or if you look at the multi-billionaires in our society and you, then you look at, quote unquote, the rest of America or for that matter, the rest of the world in comparison to America and other first world countries. It's like, hold on a minute. You know, what are, you know, they had raiding new flooring just like we do. And they had amazing public bathhouses. They had a fire brigade. Which was privatized, by the way. So if you didn't pay them enough, they would just let your house burn down. I so, mean, I'm pretty sure I've heard like libertarian philosophers argue for that. Ugh. For privatizing the fire brigade and other public services. There was a movement to privatize ATC, air traffic control. Mm -hmm. Which I can only imagine would be horrifying. Like, we do need some public infrastructure people. Yeah. Like, come on, y'all. Privatizing everything public is just going to result in disaster. Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, anyway, I just, I, I look at some of the wealth that we have and the wealth disparity that we have, and I feel like the comparison between the Roman Republic and the American, what is it, Constitutional Representative Republic, whatever, America, I feel like that comparison is often overused, but in certain aspects, it's highly effective, especially when you do look at that sort of wealth disparity and you look at 
you know, a republic can only last about 200 years and we're coming up on it. And, you know, you just, you keep looking at it and I'm like, oh, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember a while back when I would like read about Roman history, I would think like, God, these Praetorians, they ju- they're just f***ing it up for no reason. Like, just guys, guys, just let it, ha- stability, just let things remain stable. You're d- and now I'm like... Yeah, I get it. You know, the Secret Service could take some lessons from the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> yeah, when when you start looking at the Senate and the presidency and then the Roman dictatorship, essentially, and the Senate, and they're like, the Senate still has power. We can still do things. It's like, mm, mm, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. The, the executive branch has been grabbing more and more power over the past 20 years. We are... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On both sides. Like, it doesn't matter who's in the presidency. That has been a bipartisan effort. Oh, yeah. And by the time this airs, we're gonna... Who knows who will be in the presidency? (laughs) Regardless, should we jump into our segments? Yes, let's. What say you? Best dialogue. I am gonna say my favorite piece of dialogue was the tearful dog story. (laughs) Because, one, it was such bullshit and to your voice as the old lady was magnificent <laughs> thank you so that is my vote i would instead i'm not sure if this actually counts as dialogue but oh i liked the letter attached to the dove oh that that counts that counts that's a good one i'm counting that one that's my favorite woe and anguish i like that the dove just appeared yeah. Like, there's there's no postscript. There's no, like, this was sent by. It's just there. Yeah, no. There's no explanation of what it means, either. Read it again. The generation of dogs is at hand. It will prove a quarrelsome breed. Procure aid and defend yourself resolutely against it. Like, what if you got a text like that from an unknown sender? That's what that is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it like, is. it just pops up in your email. Although, to be fair, I think the reaction of someone to that in a text or email would be wildly different because I'd just assume it was spam. True. True. But who's to say that they didn't necessarily assume it was spam? Was was their carrier pigeon spam? I mean, I imagine that sometimes the carrier pigeons would end up at the wrong place, especially in this case because they're using doves, which are not carrier pigeons. I mean, doves and pigeons, the line's very fuzzy. True. But, I mean, I'd assume that occasionally they'd get mixed up but just just for context here are some of my recent texts from unknown numbers <gasps> you just have them i get lots of texts from unknown oh my numbers. gosh why some uh, spammers got a hold of my number a while back oh wow they're all addressed to someone called abuz <laughs> so i assume someone called abuz <laughs> used my number to sign up for something that they found sketchy oh, no. like they didn't want to put in their own number so they just made one up and it happened to be oh, mine oh no all right good day Agile and responsible individual is needed to fill the vacant assist position of a personal assistant part-time. Abuz, your Netflix subscription has expired. Renew today for just one dollar. <laughs> Abuz, this guy literally sent me money to join this system. In less than 24 hours, without doing absolutely anything, I got over $395 deposited directly into my wallet. <laughs> this is not a joke. Just follow the steps. You pay zero dollars. I guarantee you that. Oh my gosh, that's so over the top. Guys are gaining back their dong with this awesome tip. Used by celebs. <laughs> Harder than Cialis. Test it for free, Abuz. <laughs> oh, no. 
Here's another one. Finally, a miracle for your d***aboos. Gain two inches and perform for hours. <laughs> I can't... What, how do you gain two inches? Like, oh, that's not a question that I need answered, actually. <laughs> it does not make sense. <laughs> Right. Apparently my uh, junk bo- junk mail gets cleared every once in a while, so the, my favorite is is no longer extant. But I also got one that said, like, Abuz, these are the brain pills that Donald Trump takes to be such a genius. You want Oh some? my gosh, you should have screenshotted that one. That's amazing. I think I did, oh. actually. I'm, I'm, <laughs> but it would take forever to look through, because uh, I, I, I think I posted it on oh, Facebook, man. but it, it would take forever to find it, because I don't remember right. what it was. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, well, there you go, a booze. <laughs> <laughs> All this and much more. Anyway. Oh, that's amazing. Altobrast. Best death. Do we have any, like, there's not really any amazing deaths. People just die and then, like, there's the shooting of the yeah. dead king. Ooh, how about the best not death? What's the best not The lady death? survived. Oh, yeah, that is Yeah, she cheated and then she survived and then the Victorian killed her. <laughs> That's a great sentence. <laughs> and then the other Victorian brought yeah, her back. you know. Live forever in literature. I mean, on the other hand, I think there is a best death. There is? Who am I forgetting? The judge who was flayed and made into oh a chair. Oh my gosh, how did I forget him? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that's true. He's definitely the best death. <laughs> yeah, that's a nasty way to go. I have to say, I do respect doing that to corrupt officials, though. I mean, if there's anybody that theoretically deserves it, it would be corrupt officials. Yeah. And, it may, you know, it sets a really interesting precedent. Oh, boy. Okay. Bestiary. We have one. The crying dog. <laughs> yes, the crying dog. <laughs> the crying, were you thinking of another one? I was thinking of the serpent that apparently can um, emit large quantities of poisonous <laughs> matter so as to infect the atmosphere. Yeah, that's also totally valid. And that one has a name, too. Yeah, Perna. Perna. There we go. Yeah, that's why we were talking about New World Fauna, because you noticed it was similar to Piranha. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so we have Perna, the snake, and the crying dog, who is apparently once a woman. The footnote on Perna... In addition to saying there is no such monster in Pliny, apparently he did use the word, but it didn't mean it's not referring to a snake. According to the footnote, he uses the word for a scion or graft, book 17, and it also signifies a kind of shellfish, according to Basil. A shellfish? Yes. How would it get turned into a snake? I mean, fair enough, I guess. In the in translation between classical sources and medieval sources, a lot of stuff got confused. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Like, just because people didn't quite speak Latin. True. Or they just didn't know what stuff was. Yeah. Because that was fairly common. Okay. Yeah! Stuff to use in a D&D game. Aside from that wonderful letter. Yes. Definitely use the letter. Just grab that sucker. <laughs> Ooh! You can make it... I'm going to make another video game reference that Mac is not going to get. You can make it like any courier in The Legend of Zelda or in Skyrim who just runs up to your party out of the blue and just hands them a letter and then just runs away. And that is... that is. 
That is literally what happens in these games. Like, they run up to you, they hand you a thing, and then they run away. And I'm not talking like they walk away. No, they sprint. I, f- I worry that using a courier instead of a bird would just mean that... Because, like, in the video game, I assume you can't chase them. But in D&D, you can. You could. You could. That's true. And then you'd, they'd have to ask questions. Yeah, or or you'd have to make them, like, supernaturally fast, which only raises more issues. That's true. I mean, that is a route you could take if you wanted. But yeah, you could also just make it a bird. Yeah, and if you question a bird, like, even if you use Speak With Animals, it's just, it's not going to know anything about the letter. It's going to be like, look, I just delivered them, man. Well, also, especially if it's a pigeon, what, it's going to have, like, an intelligence of, like, one minus one? It's a pigeon. It knows where north is, and it knows how to get food and if you ask him who sent you it's just like guy who feeds me sent me yeah i don't know his name like i don't care i don't care what his name is i don't know what he does okay anything else that we can use in a dnt game skin chairs yes (laughs) (laughs) that would be a gruesome thing but also it would fit right in with several campaigns i think i would be interested to see like if you create a kingdom or an empire or something where corrupt officials are turned into skin chairs are you presenting that as a good place to live or a bad place to live because it could yeah. go either way yeah you could really it depends on your world building and how you want to portray that or and you know you can also portray it in such a way that your characters try and figure out whether it's a good place or a bad place to live you can make it ambivalent hmm, okay what else oh the witch and the dog of course the witch, a witch and the with dog. A little, a little weeping dog. She would be the most amazing NPC. <laughs> Maybe the dog really did used to be her uh, daughter. Her daughter. I like that. You could have bendy glass, too. Ooh, you could have the bendy glass. There, there doesn't need to be a lot applied to that. Just, all right, say you have a material, a non-magical material that's glass that bends, just done by skilled glass blowers. How there can you, you incorporate that into your world building? That could be really interesting. I'm trying to think of a way to use that. I guess it's basically just clear plastic, but... Yeah, but quote-unquote traditional fantasy worlds don't generally incorporate plastic material. Right. <gasps> what if you had armor that was made of glass? Like that. Oh, right. Because it doesn't break. It yeah, bends. Yeah, it bends. That would be really cool looking. That would be so dope. And you could have it, like, refracted, so it would be like... It would look like a diamond, like you just walk into battle looking like you're a gemstone. Yeah. Which is not the armor that I would wear if I were facing a dragon because it'd just be like big shiny thing with food inside yes 10 out of 10 (laughs) (laughs) wood pillage here again also of course glass is much more expensive in medieval uh, societies than in modern societies yep because it's harder to make yeah harder to make especially the different colored glass like Venice red glass would have been very very difficult to make and maintain and so to show off their wealth, they had like lanterns that had red glass panes as a show of wealth. So there you go, bendy glass. Bendy glass. That would be a really cool observatory. Like, what if you went into like the king's observatory or like the mage's observatory, and the whole thing was just a dome of glass? Like, you don't you don't have to use it as a as a big thing for your players to interact with. It could just be for flavor. Okay, anything else? I don't have anything else. I think that's it. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In states unborn and So, echoes in modern culture. I mean, we did already talk about corrupt officials. 
and (laughs) and the morals of new innovation and the old you know the old society saying down with that if if you if you take that innovation and use it then it's going to destroy us so that's always applicable so what we've learned is that jeff bezos is like a crazy emperor in his island fortress Ooh. all right oh yes this is something I found while I was looking up Tiberius because I got him confused with Claudius earlier. Ooh, yeah. Apparently, according to George R.R. R. Martin, Stannis Baratheon is partially inspired by Tiberius. Mmm, interesting. He says it's the portrayal by Baker in the BBC television series adaptation of I, Claudius. So I haven't seen that. But Neither have I. You know, Stannis Baratheon, he does live in that gloomy island fortress, so I feel like I can see the connection. That's true. That's fair. I would argue that it's more an inspiration from that particular portrayal of him and not the actual source material about him. Yeah. But I have a bone to pick with with Mr. Martinert, so. My primary bone to pick is that he has not finished his books. That's fair. I enjoy his world building. I can appreciate his writing style, but it bothers me in several aspects. But I think the biggest thing that bothers me about his universe, which has done very, very well and has a lot of strengths, and this is not me necessarily bashing it without saying that it's a, a marvelous secondary world of fantasy literature, because it is, but he sort of tries to say that it is, quote unquote, more realistic than Tolkien. Because it's grimmer. Like, he's equating it being grimmer with it being more realistic to the medieval world that he's inspired, you know, this this world, which... I mean, there are aspects in which it's more realistic. Like, it's all humans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But there's there's so many different ways to portray realistic events and things. Like, it's still a fantasy world, and you can portray the universe factually and realistically without having it be overtly gruesome or overtly porn driven. That's true. So I take issue with that. And so I do think that it's more realistic than Tolkien in several ways, including like elves, for instance, (laughs) you know, versus a very human centric world in A Song of Ice and Fire and all of that. But having something be grimmer and having it be grimdark fantasy does not equate it with being more realistic. And so I think that's a false argument. And so I do take issue with that. I agree with you. Yeah. And I haven't seen the show, but I've heard that the porn aspect is much worse in the show than it is in the books. Really? That's fair. I got, and I'm being totally honest here, I got halfway through the second book and I've seen only bits and pieces of the shows. I sort of track it like a... um like, I don't know, like a periodical in a magazine or something. I'm like, oh, that's what happened to that person. <laughs> huh, interesting. But I, like, I, I couldn't stay engaged with it. So, eh, eh. But he does have a fantastic world, and I, I truly do admire the world building, especially in his work and in the show. Like, the deliberate carefulness they put into creating High Valyrian and Dothraki is amazing, and I appreciate those linguists. Yeah. Again, my biggest issue with George R.R. R. Martin is his writing speed, because I read the series when I was an undergrad, mm-hmm. and 
in the period between when A Dance with Dragons came out mm-hmm. and now, mm-hmm. I have finished my undergrad, gotten two master's degrees, gotten a teaching certificate, taught for a year, <laughs> and am now most of the way through a PhD, and he still hasn't released the next book. Yeah, but he's too busy milking the cash cow. I feel like he got way too distracted by the fact that it was on TV. And I've refused to see the show because I'm sure it'll contain spoilers. I've already gotten spoilers just from people talking about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. And they totally, apparently they totally changed the last, like, whatever section of the book because he hasn't written it, obviously. But, you know. Like, half of the show was just based on his notes because they did, like, each season was a book. That's so frustrating. Dude. Yeah. Dude. Professor Hughes gets so mad about this. <laughs> have you heard his rant about it? I have not. Oh my gosh. You should just just drop Game of Thrones or Martin into a conversation and you will probably get this rant. And he, he keeps going on about, you know, him finishing the books and how he can't focus on his work because he's he's milking the cash cow for tv shows and money and it's like he's got a point like i'm sorry but if you look at how much stephen king writes you know and how prolific he is and there's been plenty of films made of his books yeah yeah that's absolutely what he's doing he's just like i have a tv show now it's like great finish the books like no no i you know i i really hope it's not a lost cause but it might be (sighs) anyway anyway echoes in modern culture (laughs) i mean we do have the witch, the hag, the crone. Yeah. Yeah, that's everywhere. And that's sort of, that's yeah. And also apparently we have the trope of the cheating woman being killed being so common that the Victorian translator put that back in. That you put that back that's in. That's true. I did put it back in. I was like, I was waiting for her to get killed. <laughs> you were just like, that's the end? She didn't get killed? That's true. Oh, lucky for you. <laughs> The Victorians also decided she should. Yeah, that's true. So that is that is a trope, I guess, that we can say that does, you know, come into modern culture. Is that the adulteress, even if she's tricked, gets killed. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Okay. Omitatus. Uh, D and D party. Do we want the witch? Yeah, yeah, we do. We do want the witch because she was pretty effective. Plus, we get her dog. Who else? Uh, apparently, Valerius can effectively guess at what random letters inscribed on a pillar mean, so he should be useful to have around. Yeah, definitely. He must be a paladin, because he got that from Athena. Right, of course. That's totally canon. <laughs> I mean, we are making a D&D party of these people. Fair. <laughs> Do we want the emperor who made the order for skin chairs? You know, I don't have anything against him. Or maybe the the judge, not the corrupt one, but his son. Yeah, but did he actually do anything? I don't know, but I feel like having an emperor in the party would be weird. Because, like, why aren't you at home emperoring? That's true, that's true. Okay, who else, who else, who else? The artificer who made the bendy glass. Ooh, yeah, the artificer. He can be an artificer. Yes, he can. That's easily done. Which I'm told is one of the like major classes in 5th edition. I don't know if it's a major class, but it's like a subcategory of one of them. I don't remember. We should get the lawful heir. The one, oh, yeah. the one, the who, one who didn't, who didn't shoot, shoot his, his dad. Father. Yeah. All right. He can be the cleric. Yeah. Yeah. The, the lawful good cleric. Ooh. <laughs> 
What about the rabbi, Benaha? Yeah, we could do him too. I think he'd be a very good cleric. Yeah. Okay, done. Absolutely. Or possibly a wizard. Nah, cleric. Cleric. Wise, learned people, wizard. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, you could go either way. True. Cool. All right. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. There's the weird witch bread with the mustard. Yes. Bread made from mustard flour. Yeah. Which apparently makes you cry. For like a day. Okay, but mustard gas was brutal. That's true. And if you if you do use like a really powerful mustard. Hold on. Was mustard gas actually made from mustard? I thought it was just called that because it made your eyes tear up. Mm, I'm pretty sure it had my... I mean... Mm. Yep, it is... It's called mustard gas because it's yellowish brown and has an odor resembling mustard, garlic, or horseradish. Huh. Well, there you go. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, the common name of mustard gas is inaccurate. Not because it's not made of mustard, although that also is apparently true, <laughs> but because it's also just a fine mist of liquid rather than a true gas. Huh, interesting. Did not know that either. Well, there you go. Well, we do have the mustard bread. Yes. Which, if you have ever used too much mustard, it does go up your nose and sting. Like, oh, it's brutal. I do not like it. Or if you're not from one of the wimpy states that's afraid of spicy food, just replace mustard in that sentence with wasabi. Mm, true. True. Okay. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Well, we have the Beldum. Yeah. Yeah, we do have that one. For an old witchy woman, apparently. Yes. I don't think we have any other terms. I think that's just our only one. Mm, yeah, I think that might be it. Well, there we go. Okay. Street smart! What have, what have we learned from this text? From, <laughs> aside from not trusting old women, don't trust witches, don't be a corrupt judge. You will get turned into a skin chair. Crying dogs are not, uh, nope, I got nothing there. Ooh, how about this? If you get a message from a dove that portends evil, please pay attention to it. I mean, I guess. It doesn't actually say what happens next. <laughs> okay, okay, but you did say that this happened at the same time, or like concurrent with Christ, right? That was the one on the column. Oh, that's right. Okay, but that also portented really bad stuff. These stories are not very clear about their morals. Yep, I got nothing. I got nothing. That's it, man. These are not very clear at all. Oh. Best moment. My, my best moment, I think, is you getting to the section where the editor has let us know that the translator put back in that the lady got killed. That was pretty entertaining. I did like that, that little note, especially since you already <laughs> brought it up. It's a trope. You can't leave like cuz all we we know that all women are either what are they? They're either Marys or they're witches, right? They're either virgins or whores. So, you can't let the whore live. You got to kill her off cuz she's unvirtuous. That's the trope. Yeah, to be clear, this podcast does not endorse that view of humanity. Yeah, absolutely not. Which is why it's it's it can be very frustrating when you read some of these texts because some of the commentary about some of them is so blatantly obvious because and everybody feels like they have to address it mm -hmm. is like the patriarchy and misogyny and blah 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 blah. it's like yes 
yes, we know, but you still do have to address it when you're writing about it. You have to address it, and so everybody addresses it, and so everybody knows, and so, yeah. <sighs> but it is important to address. I'm glad we've come somewhat further from killing adulterous women. Okay, your best moment. Honestly, I think it was when the judge was flayed and turned into a chair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like you're getting too much joy out of that. I am. That's why I was <laughs> reluctant to say that. <laughs> but like, I can't think of a better one. Uh, no, that one's good. That's still really good. It's one way to get your point across. Yeah. Okay. The court. Part of me wants the witch. She's conniving and she's evil and... I feel like generally I try and pick upstanding individuals for mm. my court. Nope. You know what? I can still have, I can have my cake and eat it too. Cause I'm going to pick the artificer. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Cause I can still have the magic, but he's not so horrible. He does get killed off, but he will live forever in the court. So when I was first going through this part of the book, I marked down for myself possible people for the court, and the ones I listed were the artificer and the old woman. Oh no, really? <laughs> yes, but I feel like I've got a bunch of like witchy people already. I'll trade you. If you want the artificer, I will take the old woman. No, I'm not. I am not going to do that. That would be against the spirit of the thing. Okay. Trying to get the name because I do have a third option, but I've lost it in my book. There we go. Valerius Maximus. Oh, there we go. The guy who read the pillar inscription. Yeah. And we'll call the old lady Beltame. All right. Okay. Are we on to the final rating? Wait, why are we calling the old lady Beldame? Who took her? Oh, you're right. No one did. She's trying to sneak her way into my court. No! <laughs> Get out! Artificer! Be gone, foul woman. Okay. Final rating! Am I going first again? Yes, although we have to go through several this time because there were a bunch of short ones. Oh, we do. Alright, so, 28, the X X Old woman. The old woman one. This one I'm giving an eight. I'm giving this one an eight because the sheer joy of her not getting killed, but me guessing that she gets killed and her not being killed, but being killed, but not being killed again. That was good. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, I like this one. I mostly agree, but I'm giving, I'm going to take one away because you shouldn't feed your dogs mustard flour. Ooh, true. Uh, skin chair. <laughs> Amusing, short, also terrifying. This one gets a seven. I'm going to I'm going to make this the reverse of the last one because I'm giving it an eight. Okay. I think it's a good idea. We're balancing it out. <laughs> the eagle and the serpent. Tale 37 of lifting up the mind to heaven. Four. Four? It didn't make any sense. <laughs> That's true. Like, it, it didn't make any sense. And the exegesis was really pushing it. Fair. I'm going to give it better. I'm going to give it a six because I just like the idea that this serpent can spit out so much poison that it infects the atmosphere. <laughs> or like, not even spit poison, emit poisonous matter. That's true. We don't know where it's coming from. Ugh. Okay, so that one's the snake. Henry too gets a letter. <laughs> 
This one gets a six. I like it. I like that the letter just comes from nowhere, but it bugs me that we don't actually know whether it was correct. Yes, I agree. I'm going to give it a five, though, because I, I want more from that. Yeah. Valerius reads a pillar. This one I'm giving a five. I'm going to agree with you on that one. It's just, it's a weird little anecdote, but I, I don't get anything out of it. No, there's nothing, there's nothing really there. Uh, Tiberius kills an artificer. <laughs> Six. It's got a cool artificer and it's got bendy glass, but he dies. And okay, I mean, it, it does have a pretty good moral that fits into our time. So 6.5. I'm going to give it a seven because I appreciate that we get some kind of historical anything in this text. That's and the, true. The, the characterization of Tiberius is actually pretty close to what you'd get from these sources. That's true. I'll match you. Seven. And finally, the dead king and his three sons. <laughs> this one I like. This one I really like. I'm giving this one an eight. I'm not so impressed with it. I actually skipped over it when I was originally like marking stories to do. Oh, wow. Really? And I only went back and got it because I like looked up significant stories from the Gesta Romanorum. Not that exact phrase, but like I was looking that stuff up and it was mentioned. Interesting. No, I really like it. I, d I like the imagery of them digging up the king and putting him naked up to a tree. Yeah, it's definitely wild. Oh yeah, for I'm sure. I'm only gonna give it a six though. Okay, that's fair. I think I like it a lot because it does have, I like the variations in it and I really like the, the Jewish tradition of it as well. Yes. All right, so if we average it out, that means that for this section of the Gesta Romanorum, I gave it 6.286, you gave it 6.429. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, so, you know. And it averages out to 6.357. All right, so it's a middling six. Yeah. We'll count it. All right. Which makes it actually the best section of the Gesta Romanorum <laughs> so far. Ugh. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. Alright. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. So you've got another tale for us. Yes, this is short, but it is, I would say, medical. <laughs> okay. This is listed as Tale 32 of Good Inspiration. Ooh. However, here is what it is. Seneca mentions, and in this case, the footnote does not say Seneca doesn't do it. It actually just quotes it in Latin. Oh. So Seneca does mention this. Okay. Very nice. That in poisoned bodies, on account of the malignancy and coldness of the poison, no worm will engender. All right. So this is when they thought like vermin just spontaneously generated. Oh, yes. Okay. 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 Clicking. Yeah. This is clicking now. Listeners, if you're not familiar with this theory, back in ancient and into medieval times, people weren't quite sure where, like, worms and stuff came from and thought they just were created out of the earth. No worm will engender in a poisoned body because the poison makes it inhospitable, basically is what he's saying. But if the body be struck with lightning in a few days, it will be full of them. Uh, okay. Yes. So getting hit by lightning means that you're going to be filled with worms. Which I'm going to say is accurate if the lightning kills you. <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> Why would Zeus do that to you? <laughs> I feel like that's something else uh, for a D&D &D campaign. Oh my gosh. 
a variant of lightning bolt <laughs> that also fills you with the worms. Oh my gosh, that's like a druid's thing. Oh my gosh. Or a no, witch. it's like it's um it's like spiritual weapon for clerics. You just get struck by lightning and it's just worms. I thought spiritual weapon just made a weapon. I mean, yeah, but you can make it take any shape that you want. Oh. And your shape is worm lightning? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm, I might write up that spell for the blog. Please do. Oh my goodness. Yeah, figure out where it would go. Yeah. I'm, I am, I need to know this. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, since this is the Gesta Romanorum, we have an exegesis. Oh no. I don't need to know what the worm lightning means. It's just enough to know that it exists. Are you sure? Because it's <laughs> not what you'd expect. Oh no. Okay. All right. Okay. Hit me with it. My beloved, men are poisoned by sin, and then they produce no worm. That is, no virtue. But struck oh, with come lightning. On. That is, by the grace of God, they are fruitful in good works. No. No. <laughs> no. This is why Christ used images of the mustard seed and growing and plants. He did not use worm imagery. There's a reason for this. The worms are good works. Oh yes, I'm sorry. Let me be struck, smitten, smoted by, by Christ and I will just, I will ooze good works out of every orifice. <laughs> no, stop doing the finger motion. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm going to bring that up in, in Bible study. You should absolutely do that. You go to Bible study? <laughs> yeah, practicing Christian. I know. I just don't, I just didn't realize that was a part of being a practicing Christian. It is for me. I'm one of those weird Protestants. I don't know. Most of my family is Episcopalian. I don't know if they do that stuff. I think my aunt teaches Sunday school sometimes. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do Bible study. I do church. Right now it's all on Zoom because we are locked down. <laughs> That legitimately did not occur to me that churches would have to be on Zoom. Oh yeah, we're not allowed to gather. Which, personally, for the record, I am 100% okay with. Like, I'm sorry, but the Lord is with us in all places, people. Like, if you are a believer, then you do not need to physically go to church to be in communion with the Lord. That also goes for, generally speaking, whatever other deity you so choose to worship, if you choose to worship. See, it just hadn't occurred to me because, I don't know about Ireland, but... Here for months now, there have been like the evangelical churches going, we're meeting anyway. God will protect us. No, that's, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Lord also sent the plague, people. Like, you don't need to go to church. Like, I assumed that's, the Unitarians yeah. were, doing, were doing Zoom meetings, but that's because the Unitarian sermon is basically a college seminar anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. I get very, very frustrated with the churches, especially in the States, who feel like they need to physically gather. Like, no, you don't. You can do this on Zoom. It's okay. You know, demons are not in your internet wires. It's it's okay. <laughs> but God won't protect them if they're on Zoom. They have to be in church. I don't understand. I do not understand that, people. Ugh. Stay home. Protect one another. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Protect you, protect them. Like, come on. I mean, you remember the Black Death. The correct solution was to wander the streets praying and flagellating yourself. <laughs> that's what we learned from that, right? Oh, dear. I mean, that's one way to get rid of extremists. Is to convince them to go uh, be flagellants? Yeah, I mean, 
if all the extremists go out and get the plague and then die of the plague, that's then, true. You know, that leaves everybody else. I'm not advocating for that, but it did work in the medieval period. Like that is what happened. Like I'm not not supporting it. <laughs> I'm not supporting people going out and getting the plague or encouraging anybody to go out and get the plague. Like no, please stay home, stay safe. Anyway, yeah, no worms and orifices. But yeah, I'll, I will definitely drop that in our next in my next Bible study. The worms are virtue and good works. Be like, hey guys, I was reading this medieval text, and I've got a really great analogy for Pastor Mark to use in his next sermon. <laughs> Don't you want to be filled with worms? Oh my gosh. <laughs> By the grace of God. It means you're fruitful in good works. No, no. There's a reason Christ didn't use those metaphors. Oh gosh. Anyway, this has been a wonderfully, actually, this has been a fairly theologically filled episode yeah yeah so there we go i mean we've we've talked about pagan beliefs we've talked about various christian beliefs we've talked about hebrew beliefs and and judaic beliefs we've covered the gamut of quite a few different religions well there we go do we have anything (laughs) left we need to cover i don't think so Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Like, shooting at Father's Corpse just seems like a really bad, like, Snapchat caption.